are in uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 this morning is where we're going to be. And uh, for the last uh, half of the book of Ephesians, Paul's theme comes from chapter 3, and it's this uh, statement that I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, right? You're going to have this memorized before we're all said and done with this. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy, and he's going to lay out what that looks like for us to walk. How, would, how do we live out the gospel? How do we uh, do this? And last week what we saw is that the gospel... It's not just something that we believe, but it's something that transforms us. It's something that transforms us from the old person into the new person. It transforms us. It changes us. And we saw a number of specific things last week. Speaking the truth, not falsehood. Uh, resolving anger. Uh, building our work ethic and being generous. Uh, building up others with our words and forgiving one another. These are some of the ways that the gospel changes us. We don't stay as the old man. Um, today, Paul's going to begin to talk about three ways that we walk. Three ways that we walk in chapter 5. We walk in love, we walk in the light, and we walk in wisdom. Today we're going to talk about walking in love. And the main point today is that we are to imitate our Father in heaven as beloved children. Uh, if you know me, you know, uh, if you really know me, if you really know me, you know that I love babies. And I love baby babies. Like there's some point in there where I don't love babies as much because they, they wake up. Uh, but there's like a, that sleepy baby phase when they first come out and they're just, yeah. So if I try to hold your baby, don't think it's weird. I just love babies. Um, and in our family, we've had uh, three new babies in the, amongst my siblings in the last couple months. And so I'm about to get a whole lot of baby holding in, in my family. Uh, now, what people like to do with babies is when they look at them, we like to play this game, right? And you know what game I'm about to say. Man, she looks just like, right? Now, I, for all my love of babies, I am no good at this game. I cannot tell when you give me a chunky-faced little girl, is that her dad? Is that her mom? Is that some grandma? I, I can't tell. I got no idea. Now, I say something, because that's the polite thing to do. Say, oh, she looks just like her mama. If I tell you that, I have no idea. Okay? I am lying through my teeth. I have no idea. Now, but here's the point. If you give it a few years, I can tell. You can tell. You give it a few years, you see little Hudson Andrew walking around, you can tell that's little Byron. That's little Byron walking around. It becomes very obvious in time who our mama and who our daddy is. We can't always tell it right up front. And this partly illustrates Paul's point today. He's going to say, he's going to tell us to imitate our father. He's going to tell us, look like your father, live as your father, love as your father. And this is true for us when we look out, especially with young Christians or somebody, you can't always tell right up front. They don't always look like their father, right? They don't always immediately act like their father. There may be certain actions that look Christian or not Christian or whatever, but in time, you can tell. In time, you can tell. Just like with babies, they grow up, they start to look like their daddy for better or worse. 
And in time, we can tell, right? And that's his point today. The more we walk with Christ, the more we believe the gospel, the more we know God's word, we will look like our Father. And if our Father is God, then we'll be growing in our faith. We will be loving others. We'll be treating others like he would. If our Father is the enemy, then we're going to live like the world. We're going to embrace worldly ideologies. And we're going we're to not grow in godliness. We're going to do whatever feels good. You can tell in time who the Father is. And so Christians, the point today is if we really believe the gospel, if God really has adopted us into his family as beloved sons and daughters, then we should imitate him. So let's look at Ephesians 5, 1 through 6. He says, starting in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this truth this morning that we are beloved sons and daughters of you. If we are in Christ, God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And as we read this word that, that pierces our hearts so clearly, that exposes our sin and exposes the fact that we have not always uh, imitated you in everything, God. May we remember the truth that we are a new creation and that you are the one who made us that way. And as beloved children, you call us to imitate you. And your love is steadfast and never ends. May we remember that this morning. And may we walk as you walk in this world. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, look at verse 1 with me. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So what he's saying is that we are to imitate as much as we can. We're humans. We're, we're limited. We're, we're, we're imperfect. But as much as we can, we are called to live uh, out how God would, to, to do what he would do, to have the character that he would have in the world, whether it's and as fathers and mothers, whether it's as employees, whether it's as friends, whether it's as citizens, whatever. We are to imitate him. What he does, we should do. What he is like, we should be. We are meant to copy him. Now, here's an important point to make. We do not become children because we imitate the father. We don't become children because we imitate the Father. The only way we really can imitate or act like the Father is if we are children. 
There has to be an internal change in us. We have to be adopted as sons and daughters before we can live out this new identity. So if you today put on a shirt like mine, and you put on a vest, because vest weather is best weather, as they say, and you uh, started wearing your hair like me, this is number four all the way around, and you started imitating my surprisingly athletic ability, uh, uh, that would not make you my son or my daughter. It wouldn't, in no way. You might look like me, walk like me, talk like me, use the same words as me, but that doesn't make you my child. If Hudson Andrew walks in this room, and he's got a vest on, and he's got the same humor as me, and he's got the same haircut as me, and the same facial features, and he's surprisingly athletic, hopefully, we'll see. Uh, he, he has my same sense of humor, all that. You can tell what? He really is my son. But he doesn't do those things to be my son. He is my son, and so he looks like me. And that's Paul's point. We, we don't do these things. We're not trying to earn God's favor or earn our status in the family of God by living as a Christian. That's the opposite of how you get into the family. The only way to be a part of the family is adoption. We are not rightful sons. We left the family. We chose to go our own way. And the only way to be brought back in is through Jesus and being adopted. Now, once you're in the family, there's some expectation that you're going to live as a representative of that family. You're going to live out the, the, the values and the principles and the, and the morals of this new family that you're a part of. This doesn't mean that when you mess up, you're no longer a part of the family. Because we're going to get to a hard verse here in a minute that says, those who are this and this and this have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. It's a hard truth this morning. There may be discipline. God may have to correct us. God may have to bring us out of some sin, out of some negative patterns in our life. But that's what he does to his children. He disciplines and he brings us back. There doesn't, we don't have a change of status because we wrestle with sin. Because he says in this verse, we are beloved children. Beloved. It's not a word I use a lot, but you can see the root. Love. You can see the root. That God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that we could be reconciled with the Father who is love. And he loves his children. We are beloved children meant to look like our loving father and we are meant to walk in love. Now some of you this is hard because the family and the father that you had growing up was not good, was not a man or a woman who you wanted to imitate. And so sometimes viewing God as a father might be difficult if you have uh, trauma or stuff like that in your past. But our God is not like us. Our God is perfect, and it says that he is loving, and he is kind. He's everything that we want in a father. He's everything that we are meant to look like. Look at verse 2. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He says, as beloved children of the loving Father, we are to walk in love. We are to walk in love. And 
what is love? If I was in my life group right now, I'd say, baby, don't hurt me, right? No. What is love? In our day, people define love in so many ways. And so I'm so appreciative of God's word that says that he then defines what love is. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us. And he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So how did Christ love us? He gave up himself. He sacrificed himself. He willingly gave up his life on the cross in our place. He took our place. He put himself in harm's way so that we would not have to experience that. And he gave us life that we did not deserve. He willingly and lovingly gave himself up. He uses the language, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, we don't, that doesn't mean a lot to us because we don't have a temple where we burn stuff 24-7. For them, they had a temple and they had an altar. Our altar is a place where you can come pray or you walk to the stage. Their altar was a place where they constantly burned sacrifices. And some sacrifices were pleasing to God and others were not. And they burned all kinds of different things, animals and whatever. And this, that it says a fragrant offering, means that, that Christ's death on our behalf was a, a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. It was pleasing to God. It pleased God. And these sights and these smells would have been burned into their mind. But it also reminds them of their consistent and constant failure because they know that they never measure up. That sacrifice, that fire was always burning. Why? Because we're always falling short. And this was a reminder to them of, yes, there can be forgiveness, but it was also that you never quite measure up. You never quite meet the standard. Christ, when he died, he died once for all. He's not dying again today for us. He's not sacrificing himself again. His sacrifice on the cross was enough. It was a beloved, I'm sorry, it was a, uh, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the kind of love that we are meant to show. He says that we should walk in love. We should, uh, and what does that love look like? It's self-sacrificing. We can see examples of self-sacrificing love all over the place. We see it in uh, firefighters. We see it in soldiers. We see it in all sorts of policemen and people that willingly place themselves in harm's way to protect the most vulnerable, to protect those who are in need. This is what Christ did for us. He put himself in harm's way for us. We see this kind of self-sacrificing love. I see it very up close with my wife as a mom. She sacrifices her clean clothes for other people's bodily fluids, right? She self-sacrifices her wants and needs for the sake of our kids. She gives up her own desires and her own uh, whatever so that our kids are taken care of. That's self-sacrificing love. We see it with people that take care of those with mental issues. Long-term care of a husband or a wife with a debilitating mental state. Right? We see that kind of self-sacrificing love when people take care of someone else when there's no return on their own part. Right? 
he says this is the kind of love that we should walk in. Not love that's self-centered and about what do I get out of it. No, it's about what's good for others. Galatians 5.14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do we, how do we fulfill the law? What is it all about? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Nobody has a problem loving themselves. We are born that way. We know how to love ourselves. And he says that's how we are to love others. And the root of all this is that our love for God overflows into love for neighbor. Now Paul is going to take a turn here. He's putting this as the positive. Previously last week he would say, don't do this, instead do this. Don't live like this, instead live like this. Today he goes the other way. He puts out the positive first. He says, walk in love. And now he's going to turn, and he's going to speak about the old life that we should take off. And I think the reason for this is, if we don't have love for God, then the rest of these things we're not able to do. We, uh, if we don't have love for God, then our... And we, my mind is not working. If we don't have love for God, then we, our love for our sin, our love for something cheap, our love for something distorted is more, then we'll choose that every day because we love it more. I love food more than I love the idea of being fit. So I choose food, all right? You see it? And, and he is saying if you don't have love for God first, you will not turn away from these other things because you love them more than you love God. God. So let's look at it. Verse 3. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Paul turns from self-sacrificing love to its opposite, self-indulgence. He turns from true love seen in Christ to cheap perversions of love seen in sexual immorality, impurity, and in coveting. These words, uh, sexual immorality, is the Greek word porneia, and impurity is another one, but you can get the sense of what he's talking about. He, it spans the spectrum of all kinds of distortions of what God intended sex to be. And I'm not going to detail those this morning, so you can, you can calm down. <laughs> And I don't think you should in your mind, all right? But what he's saying is that all forms of sexual expression outside of God's design, outside of God's creation, are immoral. They are wrong. Now, uh, covetousness, he says. Covetousness is wanting what other people have, and I think he's connecting it to the sexual immorality, saying that, that, uh, that you want something that's not yours. You want something that's not supposed to be yours. And we've talked about this a couple weeks ago, that our desires, just because we have a desire, doesn't mean that we should act on it. Sammy, just because I want your truck doesn't mean that I can just take your truck. Right? Just because I want your wife doesn't mean that I can just take your wife, right? Just because I have a desire does not mean that it is good or that I should act on it. 
Not all of our desires and feelings lead to life and godliness. And what he is saying is that these, there's all sorts of expressions of this, that they are wrong. This is the height of lunacy in our day. That someone would stand up and say, because you feel something, it's not good. Like, how dare I stand up and say that something is wrong and something is right? That is, that is not popular today. I'm not real excited about standing up and saying this, right? But what Scripture says, and that's what we base what is true, what is right, what is good for us. What it says is there are some things that are good and there are some things that are not good. Some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. There are some things that are best that lead to life and there are some things that do not. Now, you can see, though, we root this in the fact that God exists and that he created the world on purpose and he designed it to work in such a way if you don't believe in a God, you don't believe in a created design, you, don't, you can see how easy it is to say, well, love is love. Anything goes. Well, however you want to express that feeling is good. If you don't believe in God, yes, that's the natural course. Right? You ought to believe that. Because who, who are you to say that one thing is right over another? The only basis that we have to say anything is right or wrong is that we believe that this is true. If we don't believe that this is true, we're standing on very shaky ground. But we do. And we believe that there is a God who knows what is best and can see all things. And even though it might be hard for us to wrap our mind around, why some, like how does that work and how does this work? If you don't believe in God, morality is totally subjective. It's up to each person, but we do. And he says that there are some things that are moral and some things that are immoral. He says that these things should not even be named among you. So yours might say that it, there shouldn't even be a hint of something. Maddie likes to drink uh, LaCroix, and it says essenced with lemon or whatever. He's saying there, there shouldn't even be an essence. There shouldn't even be a, a hint, a smell, a, a light little one particle of any of this amongst us. It's not to be a part of our reputation, something we're associated with in any way. He says it's not proper among saints, a very British word. It's not living in a manner worthy of the gospel to participate in sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Christians, we have a high view of sex. Why? Because God created it. And we are not to cheapen it or diminish it or change it in any way. We are not to distort it. And don't allow Satan to even get a hint of this in your life. Run from it. He says flee from it. Don't stay anywhere near it. Because you are not your own. So glorify God in your body. Look at verse 4. He says, let there be no filthiness, 
nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, it feels a little out of context, but I think he's, in light of the conversation we just had about sexual immorality, he, he takes it to our words again. He takes it to our speech. And I think this is probably number three or four that he's addressed our words. So we probably should start to listen at this point. How we talk matters. What we talk about matters. The words we use matters. And they're not, our words are not meant to be marked by filthiness, foolishness, or crude jokes. Why? What does it matter? What does that word, those sounds even mean? Well, the point biblically is this. Dirty jokes come from dirty minds and dirty hearts. Right? And Jesus said that it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart. And so if our speech is marked by crude joking and foolish talk and filthiness, what does that say about our hearts? What does it say about what we filled our minds with? That it's full of that, right? So you want to know what's in your heart? Listen to the things you talk about. Listen to the things we joke about. And he says, instead of this kind of speech about all these sorts of things, he says, let there be thanksgiving. How is thanksgiving the opposite of this? Right? Because we filled our minds with all that God has done. And the overflow of our heart, when our minds are filled not with crudeness or foolishness, if it's filled with what God has done, what's the overflow? Thanksgiving to God. God, thank you that you've provided this. God, thank you that you've, you've given me grace. God, thank you for your forgiveness when I messed up. But that's the words that come out of our mouth when we filled our hearts with his truth. Verse 5, he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. He says, you may be sure of this. There is no doubt, he's saying, you have no reason to doubt this. This is commonly held. This is understood. This is, you can be certain about this. And what can you be certain about? He says that everyone who is dot, 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 dot will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a hard verse. But it is true and we have to deal with it. He says that these people do not have an inheritance. They don't belong to the king. They have no rightful claim of sonship or or daughtership, right? There is no relationship so is Paul saying, like, no one's going to be saved? Is he, gonna, is he saying that if, if you, you, you believe in Jesus, but you, you messed up, that you're done? Your inheritance is gone? Is that what he's saying? Not at all. We, have to, we can't just read one scripture in isolation. So if you flip over to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, here's what he says, and he gives a little more detail. He says, or do you not know... That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. All those who are unrighteous will have no inheritance. They will not inherit. They will not be saved. He says, do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He just keeps going. And if he didn't get you on the first four, he probably got you on the last four, right? And we might elevate some of those first four and say these are worse or something. But he, he puts in thieves and greedy. Greedy? On the same level? Yeah. It's unrighteousness. And he says none of these people deserve to enter the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. Before you think I'm just preaching bad news. And he says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. You used to be like this. And so the point today is this, is that every one of us, regardless of our sexual purity, our covetousness, whatever, we all fall in the status of those who do not deserve an inheritance with God. Sons of the enemy, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air of darkness. But we were that. If we're in Christ, that is now a part of our past. Such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You will not enter heaven because you are sexually pure. You will not enter heaven because you never coveted. You will enter heaven only because of Jesus and what he did to wash you and sanctify you and justify you. You cannot keep this perfectly. Even now, you and I cannot keep this perfectly. We will wrestle with sin and its influence in our life. But he says that we used to be like this. This used to define us. And if we're going to claim to be gospel people, then it should no longer define us. There shouldn't even be a hint. There shouldn't even be uh, it named among us. It shouldn't even essence our lives. Because we're new. God's made us something new. Look at verse 6. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says, don't be deceived. Many will try to deceive us today and say, it's not that big a deal. Looking at that is not a big deal. Going there is not a big deal. Doing this is not a big deal. He says, don't be deceived. Don't do it. Many people believe that that. I got my get out of hell free card. I'm just going to live however I want. Don't be deceived. He says, don't go down this road. No true Christian thinks I'm just going to live however I want. God's got to forgive me in the end. He will. But that's not how Christians think. Christians are repulsed by the fact that we're, we're not imitating our Father. That we're not living out this gospel that we believe. Why? Because we know the truth, and what the truth is, is in this verse, he says that the wrath of God is coming. I'm not suggesting we leave here and make pickets and stand on the corner and say the wrath of God is coming, although it would be true. God's wrath will be poured out against all sin, and that includes you, that includes me. The only way we can avoid that is if we are in Christ, if we have been washed, if we have been sanctified, if we have been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus. Now, we leave off at this hard truth today. We leave off 
And I want to remind us of the good news. I don't want to just leave it there hanging, going, wait, what? The wrath of God is coming? All right, y'all have a great lunch. Look at Romans 8.1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> that, that even though we fit the bill of all of these immoralities that we've just listed, he says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we're cut to the heart by a message like this. And, and the statistics say that a vast majority of men and a growing number of women struggle with porn, struggle with some sort of sexual immorality. If we, don't, if we just leave it here and go, the wrath of God's coming, all we feel is conviction at this point. All we feel is, I, I can't ever measure up. I failed too many times. Ah, I've screwed up all this. We don't even have to go to the crude joking, the foolish words, and the, all this other stuff, filthy language. But let me remind you of the truth. If you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. No matter what your past is. No matter what you've done. No matter what you've looked at. No matter where you've been. He says, if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. And I feel the weight of this as someone who struggled with lust in my past. I feel the weight of this as someone who knows, you know what, I am so far from perfect. I am so far from deserving grace in any way. And this beautiful verse, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I pray that that's what you leave with. Glorying in all that God has done to save us who have rejected him, have chosen cheap love over true love. Let me pray this morning. The band's going to come and lead us in one final song. And I hope as I pray this morning, as we sing a song of worship, that, uh, that your hearts would be directed not to how bad you have been in your past, not to where you failed, not to all that you've done. My prayer is that you would look to all that Christ has done, all that he has done to save you, and save me from that. And that we would give him thanks and glory in him for the salvation and his steadfast love. That even though we failed him, he never failed us. So let me pray this morning. God, we come before you a people in desperate need of grace. God, who have chosen cheap love and have chosen to walk in our own ways in so many different ways. God, we thank you that you love us with an unfailing love, a never giving up, never, never running out, perfect kind of love. God, we thank you for forgiveness this morning. We thank you that we were washed and we were sanctified and we were justified in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you for the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. God, I pray for the person that doesn't know you and who still sits under the weight of their sin. God, I pray that they would hear the good news and the hope that they can be forgiven, they can be washed clean, they can move forward in Christ. 
They can proclaim like we sang this morning, oh, we're free, free, forever we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. God, I pray that they would hear that hope and they would place their faith in Jesus. God, we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.